from the new recording lair located deep beneath the Wine and Spirit Store in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. You're listening to the Masonic Light Podcast. Studio 665 presents Masonic Light Podcast. This show is recorded by Masons, for Masons, and is for entertainment purposes only. And please, no wagering. This podcast is not endorsed by any Grand Lodge, and the ridiculous ramblings of the hosts are their own. And now, here's your host. Good evening, everybody. Hey, now. Good evening. We just had our typical conversation of what episode is this? <laughs> it's episode 123. 123. 123. 123. Dot. Dot. Zero, zero. Com. And I'm very excited. We have a, um, a great guest with us here tonight. Um, I think it's kind of like the world's most interesting man, kind of like this, uh, but you don't have tequila with you. <laughs> I don't always podcast, but when I do, I could tell you a story about that. <laughs> well, please do. Please do. And um, so George, uh, our guest tonight's brother, uh, George March, and uh, we'll get into George's background in a minute, but what we first do, George, here is we kind of go around the room. And we just check in to see if anybody's done anything Masonic lately. So, Timmy. No. Or Josh. Or Josh. Josh, what have you been up to? Uh, you know, not really too much. Just doing the typical Worshipful Master thing. Um, I had to attend a district-wide uh, training session and uh, master and <coughs> warden meeting on Saturday. Ugh. At Cap'n, uh, yeah, Patton Campus. And, uh, you know, the Worshipful Master meeting with the wardens, that, that wasn't too bad, but we also had to, you know, Masonic training. That's just all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Tim, what, uh, what have you been up to? Behavioral training or administrative <laughs> training? <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, since we last... Oh, okay. Never mind. Since we were last together, I'll uh, allude to some follow-up on Josh's Masonic training. Um, I've been doing a lot of uh, training for secretaries and treasurers around <laughs> numerous Masonic districts. Um, last uh, week it was num- uh, District 7 and District 2, and on Saturday was District 1. And uh, where was that at? And that was held at uh, Patton Campus. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was Patton Campus in Elizabethtown. Um, basically, it's a lot of uh, stuff on Grandview, the new transition from Salesforce to Grandview, which, um, as we are recording, um, today at 8 o'clock this morning, they shut Salesforce down, uh, which we had warned everyone to make sure they do backups, et cetera. Like old, old Yeller? He old walked in behind the barn? Exactly. Um and uh, at archived eight, him at 8:30. I got a phone call from um, a local funeral home saying that we'd had someone pass away. So, uh, of all the backups we had done, oh no, no one had suggested that we should do a backup of Masonic records of everyone. So, um, the good news is the Grand Lodge still has access to all that stuff. So I sent, <laughs> I sent a text message immediately and said, um, I knew this was going to happen, and I was pretty darn well sure it was going to happen to me, of all people. Um, so anyway, the long story short-er is uh, we got the Masonic record. We're going to be given the Masonic service and so on. But anyway, uh, that's been a lot. Last week, we also participated uh, in the, with the uh, Allentown Scottish Rite program. They had a Cigar Lodge event up there with about 60 brethren. It was great to spend uh, uh, Sunday afternoon with all those folks. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, that's been about it. Like I said, lots of training, lots of cigar smoking, little social events here and there. Oh, um, and Sunday, um, went to Grotto. This past Sunday, I was at Grotto. I'll let Jack talk about that. Oh, yeah, Grotto. We did have Grotto. I remember parts of that. So, Jack, uh, what have you been doing? Well, I went to Grotto. Yeah. 
<laughs> I don't know. Does that help anything? Had Tall Cedars yesterday. Had Grotto on Sunday. Had a family event over the weekend. So that uh, pushed that everything out of Masonic reality. And then we had a stated meeting. Uh, so pretty much basic stuff. I'm kind of ratcheting down my extracurricular involvement, my appendant bodies and stuff, and focusing on the things that are important for me, and that's Blue Lodge and AMD and the podcast. Um, and, and, I mean, Grotto is just a fun thing. It doesn't require a whole lot of emotional stress. I hope you're watching this on the YouTube channel because these knuckleheads are just ridiculous. Um, we need footballs to little little inflatable footballs to throw at each other. Oh yeah, monkeys and footballs. Yeah. yeah. So George, what have you been up to, masonically speaking, and then anything else speaking? Yes. Well, this past Sunday evening was the testimonial dinner for the newest. Uh, Grand Commander of Knights Templar in Pennsylvania, Mark Mattern. <gasps> Mark Mattern. And that, that was held at the uh, Antique Auto Museum in Hershey. Cool. Uh, so very, very well attended. Very nice venue there. Uh, and it was really a privilege to go up there. I'm serving currently as the treasurer recorder for Centennial Commandery Number 55. And on August 28th in Reading at the Reading Masonic Center, there's going to be a one-day conferral of Knights Templar orders there, and I'm going to be playing the prelate's part uh, for the conferral of those orders. So much of my time every day has been spent going over and over and over <laughs> in my head trying to memorize those very long and complicated parts for the prelate. I'll do that on the way home as I did on the way up here. Excellent. So your steering wheel is a... Uh, a, a full-blown templar knight yes yeah, yeah by by now for sure <laughs> <laughs> nice larry my list of things that i did not do is greater than the list of what i did do <laughs> but i think worshipful master josh can attest to the fact that he gets a text from me about every other day about the merger committee so we're very, very active in that response because I'm the recipient of phone calls, texts, everything. It's it's really fun, Josh. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and, of course, Ghost and Gridiron every Thursday, please. If you're in the Lancaster area, come by, 9 o'clock, every Thursday. Where? I, I don't remember the name of the place. Some Square public Mile house Public House. Square Mile. Thank you. I can never remember that. Just know how to get there. I know how to get there, yeah. Yeah, so that's what's going on. All right, right so what have I been up to? I went to um, went to Grotto, and we had our Grotto meeting this time at a winery on the eastern shore West. of York County. Oh, western shore. No, West. no, no. No, it's the eastern yeah, shore of York County. The eastern shore of York County. Oh, yes. That's correct. Eastern shore of On the beautiful Susquehanna. Right. Susquehanna. Jack, you gave me the inside information. What? How have we described this winery? Well, an employee of that winery described it as the dive bar of wineries <laughs> <laughs> appropriate for grotto <laughs> which yeah. i would have to say oh yeah what <laughs> uh, two of the ladies that were in the group went to the uh, person in charge and said can can we have somebody wipe the tables down please <laughs> i'm sorry we ca i can't leave the behind the bar well can i just get a rag and some soapy water. No, we don't have that. <laughs> Mask up. Are you kidding me? <laughs> the the weeds were higher than the uh, grapevines. <laughs> oh. So anyway, but, it was a, but, but, but we had a good fellowship time. Fellowship was good. The fellowship was great. It, uh, Grotto, the fellowship is always great. But anyway. and we had uh, tall cedars. Um, it kind of fell on me because I was an overachiever or a <laughs> micromanager. Um, to make sure this cookout went off okay. Jack was very kind and uh, took on grill duty. And I think it was a nice event. Butch does a great raffle. He's yeah. fun, yeah. And I think we're going to probably try to steal this for Grotto because I think it could be next level funny with Grotto. All right, well, that's it. Let's take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to hear from our guest, Brother George March, about all kinds of things. 
Why choose George J. Grove & Sons for your next home improvement project? At George J. Grove & Sons, we've built our reputation on quality and trust for more than 50 years. For planning to materials to installation, George J. Grove promises a home improvement experience second to none. Whether your goal is reducing energy costs, decreasing maintenance, updating curb appeal, or simply increasing the value of your home, the George J. Grove team will recommend and provide solutions that stand the test of time. Call 717-393-0859 for an estimate or visit us at georgejgrove.com. Welcome back, everybody. Um, our guest today is Brother George March. Uh, George, I met you, I guess, through AMD. And as I started learning more and more about you, it just kept getting more and more interesting. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give the, the smallest synopsis that I know, and then we're going to ask you to kind of elaborate on these things. Um, George was in the military. He was in the U.S. Army, and he um, had the honor of being a, a tomb guard at the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is, he'll explain, is very prestigious. Not anybody can get that job. Um, after the Army, he decided to uh, join the Pennsylvania State Police and rose all the way captain. Deputy Commissioner, Lieutenant Colonel. There you go. So that's as high as you can get without being appointed, right? That's like the highest position you can earn? That is an appointed position by the governor. The deputy commissioner and the commissioner are appointed. The higher, the next highest commission, the highest, is commissioner. So, and then after the Pennsylvania State Police, George was chief deputy of two different sheriff's departments. Um, he also had another federal job in between. And in his retirement, he hikes all over the world. So, George, welcome. Well, thank you. Well, glad to be here. So, can you tell our listeners a little bit about where, do, where did you grow, you grow up? I was born at the Homeopathic Hospital in Westchester, which no longer exists. It became the Memorial Hospital, one of two hospitals in Chester County, and that one no longer exists either. <laughs> Uh, it is now a county office building there uh, on the east side of South High Street. Was first uh, partially raised on a farm in West Bradford Township until my parents built a home further away in West Bradford Township and lived there uh, until I went into service. A short time after I got out of the service and got married and then moved into Callan Township. And then when I joined the state police, spent three years up in Moscow, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Scranton, before I was able to get transferred back into Chester County. And then I spent many years in Chester County until I began to rise through the ranks and finally made my way to Hershey and to Harrisburg and to Philadelphia and to Hershey and to Harrisburg again. <laughs> Up and down the river. Up and down. So um, tell us about your, your journey in the Army. Um, you, <clears throat> when, did, when did you enlist in the Army? My father had been a paratrooper in France during the Second World War, and it was a coming-of-age thing back at the time uh, when you had to register for the draft. So if you were 13, that was a coming-of-age thing. When you were 16, you could get a learner's permit and drive a car. That was a coming-of-age thing. And then when you turned 18, you had to register for the draft, so that was another one. So the draft office was in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, and I went up there to register for the draft, and I was excited to do that. Went downstairs outside the draft office, which was closed, and was sitting on a bench and saw another fellow come down the steps and had a suit jacket over his – or a suit carrier over his shoulder and walked 
asked me what I'm doing there, and I told him I'm waiting for the draft board to open. He said they'll be open in about a half an hour. Then he turned around and walked down the hall in the other direction. In about 15 minutes, I heard a door open, and he walked back out, and he is dressed in the U.S. Army recruiter's uniform. (laughs) And said to me, would you like to have a cup of coffee? Well, I had never drank coffee until that time, but I wasn't going to dare say no to him. So we went into his office, and he said, what do you, uh, what would you like to do in the military? Do you really want to get drafted? I said, no, I want to enlist, but I know I have to uh, sign up for the draft. And he said, well, is there anything particular you want to do when you're in the service? I said, I want to go into the Airborne. And he said, well, you know, that's a specialized occupation, and specialized occupations in the Army can only depend on your test score that you take. And he said, I can give you the test right now if you'd like to take the test. So I took the test, and he's scored it and he's sitting there scratching his head looking at the score and he said so you want to go in the airborne yes i said yes sir and he scratched his head some more and looked at my test score and he said well you've got a high enough score to go in the airborne so anyway i went home that evening after registering for the draft and my dad said how'd you do at the draft board and i said i did fine i got a paper here for you to sign and he said i didn't know i had to sign for you to register for the draft i said you don't i enlisted today The recruiter told me I had a high enough score to go into the Airborne, so I was going to do that. And his dad says, you know what? You can get a score of zero on that test and go into the Airborne. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how I went into the service uh, in September after I graduated from high school. So did they tell you what you could have been eligible to go do with your test score? No, they did not. I don't think they were going to try to dissuade me from going into the airport. That's the difference between the Army and the Navy. You know when you do your enlistment what you're going to go for. I mean, right away, this is what you're going to do. So, George, once you got in, how did you make that um, that jump over to the, uh, yes. the, the job? Well, I was in what they call advanced infantry training, and I had been in Boy Scouts when I was younger, and we liked to uh, do parades, and I was always very interested in how to march and do facing movements and all that sort of thing. And we came back from a uh, practice session when I was in advanced infantry training and got back into a formation, and just before we were dismissed, the sergeant who had taken us out said, mentioned my name and two others and he said the first sergeant wants to talk to you and that first sergeant is not somebody you wanted to have to talk to anyway we went in there and he said it's my job to keep an eye on folks here in the in the training squads and see if there's anybody i think that might be eligible to go into the ceremonial unit in fort Myer, virginia uh, the army ceremonial unit and he said would you be interested in going Well, that was a whole lot closer to home than what Fort Bragg, North Carolina was for the Airborne. So I said, yes, I'll go there. And fortunately enough, I was selected to remain in what they called Honor Guard Company at the time. And I was assigned to do uh, be a casket bearer in Arlington National Cemetery. And I also served some time uh, in a unit attached to the uh, U.S. Army drill team. And then I decided that I wanted to try out for the sentinels at the tomb. And I went and spoke to the tomb guard sergeant, the sergeant of the guard. And he said, well, come on out and we'll take a look. And you go out and you practice for a while. And then they finally say, all right, we think you're, you're good to go. You can stay. And that's how I got there. Wow. So I saw your presentation at a, a, I forget what lodge where you showed the video. Um, now, you were not the, uh, the soldier actually walking at the time when President Kennedy laid the wreath, but you were in the video. You were in the background. You were present. Yes. The, uh, it has been a tradition since uh, two, 1921, uh, 100 years ago, that the, when the first internment of the unknown soldier from the First World War was done on November 11, 1921, at 11 a.m., which was the time of the armistice, that the president would come and lay a wreath every year, November 11th, at the 11th hour at the tomb. The guard change had occurred at 11 o'clock. I was the sentinel who went on duty at 11 o'clock. And then the presidential wreath-laying ceremony takes place immediately after that. So they take the guard off of the mat, which they walk their 21 steps back and forth in front of the tomb, and put them in front of a 
what we called the box, but it was a guard station, and you would stand there while the president then came out and laid the tomb. So I was the sentinel on duty that day, uh, but of course not walking back and forth in the pre- front of the president when he was about to lay the tomb or, or lay the wreath. Do you have any interesting stories from when, when you were doing that, of either people trying to challenge you or? Uh, yes, you may see on the internet on these days that uh, there's some YouTube photos of sentinels challenging people who come inside the chains. There are chains that surround the tomb uh, that is a secure area. And the job of the sentinel was to, of course, protect the tomb and make sure that it was respected. So if someone came over the chains, you would come off the shoulder arms position you were in, come down to port arms, and you would at that time say, halt, visitors are requested to remain outside the chains. Two situations, it happened. It didn't happen often, but there are two particular ones. I remember about a four-year-old child coming under the chains. The challenge was halt. Parents are requested to keep their children outside the chains. The child halted, would not move, and the parents wouldn't come and get him. So I had to go get this four-year-old child by the hand and walk him back outside the chains again. Pick him up with your bayonet? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Here, take your kid. And another time was when about a 40-year-old man stepped over the chains. He got one leg over the chains, and I challenged him and told him to halt, told him visitors must remain outside the chains. He ignored me and stepped over the chains with his other leg. Hmm. And at that point, the guard comes forward at port arms toward the individual who is attempting to violate the rule and uh, told him, halt, you know, go back outside the chains. And I think he realized that I had come halfway to close the distance between me and him, and I was at port arms. And he must have heard it in my voice and seen it in my eye that he needed to reverse course and go back outside the chain. So those were two of those. There was another situation, though. That box that I was mentioning for, the guard station at the end of the tomb, Mm -hmm. well, the uh, nighttime sentinel is not required to march back and forth on the mat for the 21 steps all the time, and there were no lights around the amphitheater at the time, so it was dark. So the sentinel would need to walk around the tomb and in the general area to see if anything unusual was happening or if there might be a threat to the tomb. But in that box, there's what was known as a military field phone, and it had an electrical connection that would go to the guard quarters, which were under the amphitheater. And at the time, uh, as opposed to today, when you pick up a cell phone in there and talk, you had to go in the box and take a crank on the side of the field phone and crank and spin the crank, and that would make the bell ring down in the guard quarters. Well, I was off-duty in the guard quarters when the Sentinel was up there, and the phone started ringing so hard in the quarters that it almost jumped off the wall. So I knew the Sentinel upstairs on the plaza was turning that crank as hard as it possibly could be cranked. So the, the Sentinel's name, I won't mention his last name, his first name was Stanley. So I got on the phone and said, Stan, what's up? And he said, you got to get up here. There is the biggest rat I ever saw in the world. <laughs> he said, and it will not go away. He said, I'm stamping my feet, and it will not go away. He said, you got to get up here and do something about this big rat. So I came up. I said, Stan, where's this big rat? He says, right over there. I looked over, and I said, Stan, that's a possum. <laughs> so First cousin. Stanley lived in a city. I was going to yeah. say. In a western state, that's as far as I'll go with that, and ha- didn't know what a possum was, and he thought that great big thing was a rat. Wow. So there were some interesting things that happened. People would come through at nighttime after the cemetery had been closed, and they'd get lost and wouldn't be able to find their way out. So you'd challenge them as they got onto the plaza, and then you would give them directions. So interesting times. I remember seeing a, a YouTube video that came out after – uh, I don't remember what hurricane it was that blew up the East Coast and showing these sentinels standing their guard in the midst of hurricane force winds yes. blowing through there. And yes. that was always yes. just absolutely amazing. Well, there is information, unfortunately, that still has remained on the Internet that is incorrect. Okay. That the, Imagine uh, that. That the military district of Washington <clears throat> uh, commander had ordered 
because of the danger that might occur to the Sentinels during the hurricane, that they ceased the, their guard duty and returned to their quarters under the amphitheater, and the guards refused that order. Well, that order never happened, uh, and the guards did remain on duty. Amazing. Do you get shorter shifts in weather like that or during no? No. no. The uh, when when I was a sentinel there in the sixties, the daytime uh, time on the mat was an hour, and then you would be off for either another hour and then go back on again. Or if there were three sentinels on duty that day, you'd be off for two and go back on again. So it was an hour on, and so each tour was an hour during the daytime when I was there. Since and at nighttime it was two hours. Since then, because they have closed the cemetery to the ability to people to drive their cars in, you must go to the visitor center and get a shuttle to come up there. Mm -hmm. And they they realized that the number of people who would be up there uh, wouldn't want to be waiting an hour. So they changed in the daytime now. They changed the guard every half hour in the daytime. But it's still two hours at nighttime. What's worse, the heat or the cold? Well, I think that depends on the Sentinel. The uh, I always prefer colder weather rather than heat. Uh, you could layer your clothing in the cold weather. That uh, you could wear some some other under layers that would keep you fairly warm. In the summertime, you you couldn't only go so far because <laughs> of the ceremonial uniform. Right. And the summertime, with an hour with the sun and the baking on the marble plaza up there and the mm. amphitheater behind, sometimes you had to have three or four uniforms because you could not repair the damage done to the uniform from the sweating and the and the getting soaked in that hour you were up there. There's a so I preferred winter over summer. There's a beautiful picture of one of the sentinels on the plaza in the snow, and he's just standing, you know, perfectly erect as they do, and and there's about two and a half inches of snow on the top of his hat and it just speaks to the commitment level of those guys during that kind of thing well i don't know who the sentinel on duty is there that you saw in that picture but i have a photograph of myself exactly like that at home yeah (laughs) very cool so so interesting thing number two how after the army how did you decide to be a state trooper i remember you told me this a story one time and Interesting. Uh, I was working for a a butcher when I went into service, and of course you were required to be rehired by the the company or the, the whoever was your employer when you got out of the service. So I went back to the work for the for the butcher, and at the time, uh, every family had a insurance agent, and the insurance agent came to my home and said, "I would like to have you convert your GI insurance and get." one of our policies well there was no such thing as converting your gi insurance you lost it and he would sell you a new policy but he asked me about how much i was making uh, in the butcher shop and i told him i was making whatever it was and he said well we've got an opening in the in in our office for an agent and we can pay you 155 dollars a week and my eyes popped open and i fell back and i said 155 dollars a week i will take that job so i became an insurance agent and at the time, you had what was an area that was your responsibility for the company. It was called the debit area. Mine was in northern Chester County. And I found that the uh, salary that they would pay of $155 a week did not last more than six months because after that, your income depended on the commission you would make from the policies you sold. So the idea was to sell the highest price policy for the longest period of time because your commission rate would be higher on that you would get paid your entire commission for that year the very first time the policy was issued. But if the policy were not renewed during that year, if the premium was not paid the remainder of the year, then that additional uh, commission that you got would be taken back from you. So many times the agent would have to go and sell the policy month after month after month after month to make sure that it stayed in force for that year so you wouldn't lose your commission. And I thought, uh, I'm really not liking this job that much. <laughs> so I had been out of the service only for several years, and I decided I knew that I could go back into the service at the rank I came out. And but I didn't know where to go uh, to, to inquire about that. But I knew that there was a National Guard office in Westchester, so I'm driving down Route 100 
uh, from northern Chester County to go to Westchester, and I get to a red light at Schoen Road there just outside of Exton, just north of Exton. And I look over to the left, and there's a state police barracks there. And I thought, you know what? I can do that. So I made a left-hand turn and drove into the state police barracks <laughs> and applied. Wow. If that had light had been green, who knows where I'd be sitting today. That's amazing. Well, well let's take a quick break, and we're going to come back. We're going to hear a little bit more about uh, George March. As far back as the mid-1800s, records exist describing the pre-meaning tradition of brethren smoking cigars during and after gatherings. To this day, the practice of smoking cigars remains very much alive in many lodges. This custom is considered a time for brethren to relax, exchange ideas, and enjoy the simplicity and fellowship that is the very essence of our brotherhood. This is what Hireman Solomon Cigars is all about. Our starting principles are to bring Masonic brethren together in the harmony of a good cigar. Pull up a chair, sit back, light up any of our premium cigars, and enjoy the history. Hireman Solomon Cigars can be found at fine cigar retailers. For a complete list, visit HiremanSolomonCigars.com or check them out on social media to find out when they'll be at a live event near you. Hireman Solomon Cigars is pleased to be the official cigar of the Masonic Light Podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, so, George, we were just chatting about some interesting things in the state police. Um, you had mentioned that you had started the first SWAT team for the Commonwealth for, for the state police. Yes. How did that happen? Uh, we had a commissioner who had been a former member of the FBI who was appointed by Governor Dick Thornburg, and he came in and looked at the department. He realized that we had no SWAT team in the, in the department. This was 1986. And he put out a special order asking for a, in, information from anyone who might be interested in ta- filling a position to do that. Uh, I applied for it. I was selected to do that. So it became my responsibility to form what today is known as the Special Emergency Response Team in the state police. In other organizations, it's called the the SWAT teams. So I went out around the country, uh, learned how other departments that had one for years, for instance, uh, Los Angeles, California, visited them, got their policy manuals, and then was responsible for writing what is now known as the – the FOR 5-5 uh, special special emergencies and high risk incidents manual. So I prepared, I wrote that manual for the state police back in 1986. Selected the process for choosing who to put on this on the team. Uh, got the training all put together, and then we formed a tactical team, which is the fellows go out in uniform and all that. Uh, and we also had we realized that some negotiations should take place before the SWAT team actually charges on the building. So we formed a negotiation team as well at the same time, which still exists today. So, and then um, you also mentioned uh, this this scary man, the scary burglar that they, you learned about when you were a kid. Just yes. Tell us that story. Yes. This was before we had a TV at home. Uh, it was radio station 1420 WCOJ in Chester County, Pennsylvania. And there would be these occasional stories about this notorious burglar named Wassel Tober. And it gave me nightmares at nighttime thinking that Wassel Tober might come try to break into our house and what are we going to do? Uh, eventually, it turned out that Wassel was trying to break into a home in, I believe it was South Coatesville, and got shot in the arm and lost one arm. So Wassel Tober became the f- infamous one-armed burglar, and he kept on doing it uh, and kept engaged in criminal activity. So after I joined the state police, I was assigned to the criminal investigation unit at Emeryville. We got a call one day that a body had been discovered floating in the Brandywine Creek above Downingtown. And I was assigned to go out and conduct that investigation. Well, the body in the creek happened to be Wassel Tober. So I was the one responsible for investigating the homicide of Wassel Tober, the guy who had given me nightmares when I was a 12-year-old kid. <laughs> That's neat. 
So when did you retire from the state police? 1998. And how long before some other agency tried to scoop you up? Well, they scooped me before I retired. <laughs> uh, Anthony Sarcione was the district attor- attorney in Chester County, and I had served in Chester County for a long time and, and been in court in front of his attorneys and so on. And his chief of detectives had announced that he was going to retire, and he approached me and asked me if I would be interested in being the next chief of detectives in Chester County. Well, at the time, I was deputy commissioner of the state police. My office was in Harrisburg. I had to drive back and forth to Harrisburg every day, and it's sort of like the thing in the Army. Am I going to go to Fort Bragg, or am I going to stay, go to Washington, D.C., which is closer to home? Well, the office in Westchester is closer to my home, and I had enough time to retire from the state police, so I took Anthony up on his offer to become the chief detective uh, in Chester County. And then you also went on to the sheriff's department. Well, about six months later, the, I was contacted by the president of a organization in Tallahassee, Florida, known as the Institute for Intergovernmental Research which was responsible for operating a program under the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Justice Programs, known as the Regional Information Sharing Systems. And the president of IIR asked me if I would be interested in becoming the chief information officer for that program for the U.S. Department of Justice. And it received priority because 9-11 had happened in 2001. And... The idea was that because the police agencies around the country had not had a good way of sharing intelligence information before 9-11 happened, that there needed to be a better way of doing that. And it was my job and my unit's job, uh, which was the Risk Office of Information Technology, to work with federal, state, local, and tribal organizations to enable their information sharing systems, particularly their sensitive but unclassified intelligence information sharing systems to be able to communicate with one another so we wouldn't lose this critical information because the systems couldn't talk to one another. So I did that for 14 years. So how did you, um, how did you make sure that one agency who might be investigating something didn't accidentally reveal well you you oh okay well you can imagine uh, that the computer systems now this uh, i got in, interested in computers in 1986 when uh commodore was had their offices in westchester and just found that to be very interesting stuff and i just learned more and more and more about it and so one time when i was going to go to the national academy uh fbi national academy one of the courses that they offered was uh, information technology. Uh, but you couldn't go to the course because they said it was going to be a medium-level course. You had to have a certain level of knowledge ahead of time. So you had to apply and give them your whole resume about what you knew about IT before you went. And then they would call you and tell you whether you were qualified to go into the program. And uh, so I got a call. This was when I was at the State Police Academy in Hershey. And... Uh, They told me that the FBI Academy is on the phone, wanted me to talk to me about this application for this uh, for this course I wanted to take. So I spoke to the gentleman down there, the FBI agent, and he asked me to go over my resume. and, And he said, "Is all this truthful information?" And I'm thinking he's going to tell me I can't come to this course. I'm not qualified. And then finally he said, all right, you you can come and be in the course in one condition. I said, "What's that?" He said, "You teach it." (laughs) <laughs> wow so that's what i did <laughs> so i was very into in information technology but getting back to the question about about the information sharing systems there that we worked on you can imagine that as computers first became in come into agencies they would adopt certain applications and certain types of some of them had old mainframes and some of them would would you know, improve those over the years. Other ones wouldn't. They wrote their own applications. They were intended to be used only by people in their own agency. They had certain credentials that you had to use to get to them. They just couldn't talk to one another at all. So the job here was to convince them that more information sharing capability needed to be done in the IT world. And so we worked with them 
and we actually built a translator program that uh, if their system would be hooked up to our translator, we would translate <coughs> their language into the language of another system and be able to communicate with that other system so it could reply back and be translated back to them. So that's what we worked on. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting stuff. Now, you can imagine, this is not a negative term, but it's often used in the I2 world. There were many dinosaurs who loved their system, didn't want to talk about change or anything. I remember the Sounds FBI. Sounds like Freemasonry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember the FBI one time when we were trying to convince them to connect to our network said, well, you're a dirty network and we can't do that. And I said, well, we have a system that we believe is a very secure system. You don't have to worry about it being compromised. We look at it every day for uh, intrusions of an un, a, you know, un, illegal nature, and it's not a dirty system. So we'd like you to try our system at least. And but I will give you some advanced information so that at least you'll be able to get to the system. And if you think you can get any further than that uh, to do anything harmful, we'll let you know when we discover you. So he said, okay, but we don't want any advanced information. We, you'll know when we're there because if you're doing a good job of finding intrusions, you'll, you'll detect us. So a couple of weeks later, I hadn't heard anything. A couple of weeks later, I hadn't heard anything from our uh, guy. And I finally called the FBI and talked to the guy I talked to before. I said, when are you going to start this, you know, this entry, entry test into our system? And he said, well, you need to talk to my supervisor. So I talked to the supervisor, and he said, when are you going to start this information test into our system? this hacking test. And he said, uh, you need to talk to our IT guy, our CIO. So I talked to him and I said, when are you going to start this? We, we've been looking for it. And he said, well, uh, we can't find you. you know, so, <laughs> so they couldn't even find our system, let alone break into it because we had such a, a secure system there that you, you had to have advanced information even to be able to get to it. So they eventually became part of the system. Yeah, very interesting times. Let's skip past law enforcement to your retirement. Yes. <laughs> Hiking. Yes. I was wondering when we were going to get to that. <laughs> Larry, you're going to hike to your car later. Oh, yeah, I yeah. am. So, so how did you get into this? And tell us some of the places you've been around the world. Oh, well, I, I, when I was in Scouts, I, I liked doing camping and hiking and that sort of thing. Uh, but I got away from that when I went into the service and then went back into these this job. But when I was traveling all around the country, people would say to me, well, what's Sacramento like? Or what's Austin, Texas like? Or what's Tallahassee like? And I'd say, well, I can tell you what the airport's like, what the hotel meeting room is like, and so on. But other than that, I can't tell you. I'm thinking, this is nuts, right? I'm getting, I'm going to all these places around the country. And uh, so I started going, instead of flying out on a Sunday to go to a Monday meeting in Sacramento, I'd fly out on a Friday. I would stay a couple of days over the weekend, and I'd start exploring the area, and I got back into hiking. So then I got very interested in it and joined the Chester County Trail Club, of which I just completed four years as their president, which is the maximum amount, two terms that you can do. And as part of that, I, we, we were doing some international trips, and then I got involved with the Appalachian Mountain Club up in New England, and I've led trips in China twice. I've led trips in Ireland. I've been to Morocco, uh, Switzerland, uh, Patagonia, uh, Italy, pretty much all around the world uh, doing hiking trips and backpacking trips as well. Who has the best food in the whole world? Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, I get the important stuff. Yeah. Oh, my. Italy, Italy, Italy. Well, if I don't say Italy, my wife would give me a shot in the arm because <laughs> her name, <laughs> she's Italian herself, so I got to say Italy. But uh, I was surprised at the quality of food in, in some of these faraway places, like in Morocco when we hiked through the Atlas Mountains and were being led by guides who packed all of our stuff on donkeys and would prepare the meals for us in the evening. Very, very good. Very good. Yeah. I can't say I've been disappointed that anywhere I've gone, which tells you how much I like to eat. <laughs> well, you wouldn't know because you're still thin. <laughs> it's all on hiking. Yeah. George, thank you so much. I mean, we, we could talk for 10 hours, but we can't. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on. 
Um, stick with us here. Uh, we're going to have another little segment, and we're going to wrap up. But right. uh, Well, thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed, once again, being with you all. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. At the historic Smithton Inn of Ephrata, Pennsylvania, we're pleased to serve the latest creations from Weathered Vineyard Winery, along with spirits from Thistle Finch Distillery in Lancaster, all to be experienced in the tasting room of a beautifully restored 18th century bed and breakfast. Cigars by DNS Cigar are available for your enjoyment in the courtyard. The historic Smithton Inn is convenient to Lancaster County's most interesting attractions. Just minutes from the Ephrata Cloister and the Green Dragon Farmer's Market, and a short drive can get you to charming Lidditz, thriving downtown Lancaster, as well as Hershey, Bird in Hand, and Intercourse, or Valley Forge and Gettysburg. Whether you're looking for a romantic getaway or an active vacation full of sightseeing and attractions, the historic Smithton Inn will be a welcoming oasis from everyday life one that you'll want to visit again and again. Stop in and visit at 900 West Main Street in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, or check out our website at historicsmithtoninn.com, or simply call us at 717-733-6094. Just ask for Passmaster Dave. Symbols with symbologist Michelle Snyder. Rings unlocked. The golden key knows the secrets of rings. Rings are everywhere and they have many meanings. Rings are evident in all cultures and mythologies. The ring is, above all, the symbol of a bond, an alliance, or a vow. In Greek mythology, Prometheus is the first man to wear a ring. Punished for stealing fire from the gods, Zeus swore to keep him bound to a mountain eternally, but forgave him. Instead, he commanded that Prometheus wear an iron ring with a small fragment of the mountain fastened to it. So, in a certain sense, Prometheus continued to be bound to the rock. In this way, rings can symbolize bondage. Rings can symbolize blessings. In Norse myths, Freya possessed a ring from which all other gold rings dropped continuously. Rings are circles, which have long been archetypes for timelessness, wholeness, and homecoming. So, rings represent completeness, as with wedding rings. A signet ring, scepter, and crown are all symbols of absolute royal power designed to reflect the light and glory of the heavens onto the earthly one, representing the god of the sun. Rings can represent power delegated through a royal signet. A document from a king, marked with the emblem on his ring, carries with it the power of his throne. A king's ring given to someone else could pardon them or protect them from destruction. An arm ring was worn by Thor. Oaths were taken on it, which represents an older god of law and order. Rings have deeply rooted magical significance. Enchanted rings figure in many ancient folktales. Magic rings have granted such things as invisibility. Incantations and spells for the protection of the wearer of a ring are common motifs. Today, wedding rings are blessed by a minister or priest in traditional religious ceremonies, thus continuing the symbolic practice of imbuing rings with protective powers combined with the symbolism of completeness. Although a ring is commonly worn as a token of love and marriage, it is also a significant cultural and historical symbol for power, luck, and slavery. Roman betrothal rings were tokens of legal vows. A person with a ring in their nose is understood to be a slave. Pagan stories tell of youths becoming bridegrooms of Venus by a ceremony of rings, and thus were bound to the goddess. Many legends of humanity tell us about ring talismans. These special rings are associated with elves and dwarves. These rings bring good luck to their owners if they keep them, but the loss of the ring means painful disgrace and torments. Rings represent human station in life. For centuries, the type of material a ring was made of or the presence of the precious stone on it let others know the wearer's class or position in society. Be sure to read Symbology 
Revision by symbologist Michelle Snyder. Next time, we will listen to the buzz of the bees. And we're back. Um, we've obviously had a change of plans. Um, Jack yeah, came no, up with a question. We're just wrap, wrapping it up, and I, I was just you know running back in my head over the conversation with George, and we didn't really talk about your Masonic affiliation, George. So, other than the fact that you were at at uh, Mark Mattern's whatever it was testimonial, testimonial. yep. So, uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to Freemasonry in the first place. Well, uh, w- when my father-in-law had a butcher shop, and I helped him in the, in the butcher shop. And one of his customers was the name of Gordy Dunlap, and he was a officer in Goddard Lodge 383 in Coatesville. And I had Gordy build a garage for me at my home. And while he and his brother were there, they would often talk about masonry, but wouldn't talk to me about it. But I, they were talking loud enough that I could hear this. So one day I finally heard enough of this, and I said, Gordy, how do you get to be a Mason? And he said, I thought you were never going to ask me that question, (laughs) because at that time you couldn't approach someone and suggest that they ought to be a Mason. So that's how I got to be a Mason, because Gordy Dunlap and another friend of mine who I did not know was a Mason uh, signed my petition. And and How long ago was that? 1973. Okay. Yes. So you've got to be 25 in. Yes. Nice. There's no pension here, by the way. No, this is true. So I uh, – He already has three. Yeah. I got very interested, and as you can imagine, I was encouraged to start through the chairs. Sure. And uh, at the time, this would have been probably in 1986, uh, I was in the state police. I mentioned what I was doing Mm -hmm. at that time up at Hershey. I was very, very busy, so they were trying to get me to become – the master of the lodge for several years, and I'd actually stopped going to Masonic meetings because I was so busy elsewhere. Mm. So then they finally convinced me that I ought to, you know, do the three uh, east, west, and south chairs, mm-hmm. and I agreed to do that, and I became master in 1986 uh, of the uh, Grant uh, Goddard Lodge 383. Are you part of the state police degree team? Yes. Were you here for one? We had. We had you guys here. I was not for, no, uh, for no, a, a no. raising. Okay, wasn't sure about that. That's um, like getting a degree in South Carolina, by the way. Yeah, it's, it it's was, beautiful. Pretty close. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's military precision. When it, yeah. yeah, well, um, actually, it was a real privilege to me that when our commissioner, when I was a deputy commissioner, um, the uh, another individual was a good friend of his and she suggested that possibly he might become a mason so i actually conferred the third degree on the commissioner of the state police at the grand lodge uh in philadelphia oh very wow. nice yep. that's very cool. nice yep, that was very cool so on your international hiking trips do you come across freemasonry at all do you seek it out i do uh, as a matter of fact i was in uh northern scotland and uh after a hike i just like to get out and walk around the villages and i was walking past a door, and I saw a Masonic symbol on the door. And it was nighttime, about 9 o'clock at night. But I thought, well, I'm going to knock on the door anyway. So I gave the door three raps, and next thing you know, the door opened. And turns out that the lodges in Scotland have an on-site bar that is open almost every day, mm-hmm. even when nothing else is going on in the lodge building. So they invited me in. and Ah, civilization. So beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Bought no, no prohibition. That. So, yeah, in in many cases, I've when I've had the time, I've sought out locations and spoken to people in the fraternity elsewhere. Cool, very good. Did you ever hike the uh, tour Mont Blanc? Mont Blanc in Italy. Italy, Switzerland, and France. Yes, you did. Not not the entire pathway. Portions in, of it. Portions of it. Yes, yes. Do you hike the higher level or the middle level or the lower level? Uh, the 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 higher level. Okay. Yeah, I've never done hiking using technical equipment where you need an ice axe and crampons and things yeah, like that. Yeah. But I've done all the way up to the edge of that. Larry, just tell us where to look for the body. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> just yeah, that's make that, it easy. That, that's how I was explaining when he Maybe with your with George. your hiking. I said it's up until like the point where it becomes climbing. Right. It's just short of climbing. This isn't just a walk in the woods. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
All right. Well, as uh, we transition to our wrap-up, um, why don't we uh, quickly kind of go around. George, you got anything coming up in the next uh, few weeks uh, Masonically? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, on uh, as I said, I'll be part of the conferral, the one-day conferral of Maso- uh, Knight Templar Orders at the Reading Masonic Center on uh, August 28th. But on August 7th, which is the Saturday, two Saturdays from now, uh, the Donegal Church Assembly uh, is going to be formed at its first meeting uh, in... Is it Elizabethtown? Yes. I'm not sure exactly where. I I can't recall right offhand. But the Donegal Church Assembly. That's right. Lancaster Masonic Center. Yes. Yeah. Apparently I'm going. I just forgot about it. On August 7th. Yes. Looking Great. forward to that. Pete, how about you? Well, apparently I'm going to that um, <laughs> event. I did think about it prior because um, you know, I've lost a lot of weight. So I just bought a new suit, and I, ro- I rolled the dice. I got the, an ad on um, Instagram or Facebook for this, like, tailored ink British suit for, like, $170. A morning suit, they call it. And yes. I'm like, that can't be true. can't be true. Well, they took all my measurements. Um, a nice tailor in China made it, however. Um, but it is beautiful. So it's a tweed, you know, a, a tweed suit. So I now have to figure out how to care for that. But uh, so I'll, I'll be dressed as British as possible for the event. It's not like those grotto sport jackets that you wear that are like <laughs> polyester. Up and throw it in the dryer. No. <laughs> yeah, and morning suit. That word morning is about the sunrise, not about the, the sad times. And so it's a morning suit. <laughs> Jack, you have anything? Well, uh, I'll be there as well. Um, in the meantime, I have Cincinnatus Council. That's my AMD Council meets on Friday here. And then we have on the following Wednesday, which is, I think, the 4th, I host a Masonic book club on the interwebs on Facebook. It's called the Agora, a Masonic book discussion. What does Agora stand for? Uh, It was the marketplace in Athens where people would go and hang out Mm -hmm. and philosophers would sit and philosophize. They would read books and talk about them. Yeah. Oh, kind of like the bar. Kind of, yeah. (laughs) Kind of like Zoom. That's kind of like the ancient Zoom. Um, So the book we're reading is called Foundations. It's a Rick Berman book, uh, and he's writing about the the prehistory of just before the Grand Lodge and and some of that kind of stuff. He's he's talking about what the foundational history before the 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 Prestonian lectures. The Prestonian lecture, just... But yeah, Larry hates everything, so he's going to hate that one too. But um, I have that, and then we have stated meeting, extra meeting, and all the while, every Monday night here at Effort Lodge, I have the Masonic education for the new candidates. So that's that keeps my calendar pretty full. Larry, how about you? Uh, lodge, uh, lodge, lodge merger committee meeting August the third at a secret location. Um, Ghost and Gridiron, pretty much. That's that's it. All right, Mr. Josh. Producer. Um, I actually have have to do sad duty. Um, I have a we, Lamberton Lodge had a past master, Walter Mall, pass away, yeah. um, and I have his his funeral tomorrow. We're going to be doing that. I, I mailed him uh, about six months ago a seventy year tall cedar certificate. Oh wow. Yeah, Walt, Walt was an amazing man. He was very nice when I was master. 70 years? Wow. But, uh, yeah, other than that, um, not too much. You know, just... Uh, I just want to say that Tim's, Tim's training was great. I was just trying to be silly <laughs> earlier. <laughs> uh, I just didn't do a good job. Sorry, everybody. And, Tim, I guess we... I have we, to recalibrate we, you as... as Subtle. <laughs> usually, usually we do this in the beginning, but uh, Tim, we should thank our patrons of the show, the people that make this show possible. We should. Our patrons uh, are wonderful. We appreciate the work you do, uh, the financial support you give us, and you too can uh, join that illustrious group. For uh, as little for as $1. $1. How much? Shout out to Scott Hoover. 
Yes. Painter extraordinaire, Lancaster yes, County. Indeed. For his continuing contributions. Absolutely. Patron. He is a patron. Random and continuing. He is a cash patron. He is a cash patron. That's correct. So uh, that uh, we greatly appreciate all of our patrons and the work that they do. And we promise to um, get you videos um, occasionally. Um, (laughs) our last episode is a must-see just because of the visual aids the hand signals that that went on they were a thing uh, actually you'll enjoy this one uh, tonight as well um so masonically coming up uh josh i too have a couple of uh, uh masonic funerals coming up and we too lost a past master robert warren who was a worshipful master in 1986 um that'll be coming up on monday um I've done a couple of events with Jay Laser, and every time I go somewhere with him, I end up with other events to go to. <laughs> um, usually, usually they involve cigars. Cigars and bourbon. Oh, cigars yeah. and yeah. bourbon. Usually yeah. they go hand in hand. So on uh, Wednesday the 4th, all it says here is Raja Shrine event. Some of you all that are in Raja Shrine probably know what that is. Um, I don't at this point. It's a shrine in Reading. Well, I understand that, but I don't know what the event is. Um, it's an event at the Shrine in Reading. With, sm- with smoking cigars and drinking bourbon. Probably. Um, so um, District 42 are going to be uh, going through the uh, aforementioned uh, training on August the 5th. Um, and then uh, the following week, which is when we're leading up to uh, the recording of our next podcast, there are actually three specific cigar events on Sunday the 8th. Uh, the Cigar Lodge will be meeting back at Cigars International. Uh, not one of our uh, patron supporters or show sponsors, but uh, Cigar Lodge is always a big hit. Um, and um, on the 12th, I will be somewhere called Elstonville, Pennsylvania. Have oh, no yeah, idea shooting where, guns. Have no idea where that is. That's uh, another one of those uh, Jay Laser things. It's off Pinch Pond Road, okay, up 72. Scottish Rite Club event down there. Heck yeah. And then uh, I'm going with Ed Stum on the 13th out to Pittsburgh to their uh, cigar. Oh, oh Lord. So, uh, that'll be fun. We'll so try to rent a ventilator for you. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Well, I think we've probably okay. I got, I got one Jack, last got thing one I'm going to throw yep. out, and Pete, I think, posted this up. Uh, we've we got a post on uh, or a message from somebody on our Masonic Light podcast. Oh, yeah. He said um, so. Pete, the message from that Pete posted: We just received a nice note. You want? Do you have the note, Pete? Are you looking for that now? Um, well, read what I posted there, but right. I have another note handy. His post says: We just received a nice note from Brother Martin P. Weeks, past master, and I don't know what those other letters are. Secretary of Lodge Saint George Number Two Hundred in Bermuda. Their lodge did a showing of our award-winning Knights of the Quarantine. To raise funds for Meals on Wheels Bermuda, and they're planning on doing it again in a couple of weeks. Oh, so awesome. I just think that's ridiculous. Oh, I love man. it. So the second work. the second email I have is Saturday the twenty first of August, um, at the lodge there in, um, in St. George. They're going to be hosting this. Um, they want to they want to try and raise a thousand dollars. Um, and you can watch our stupid video there. Um, <laughs> tickets are only $50 at the door, and you get a wow. jewel. Awesome. Holy moly. We only charge 30 But that's okay. That's okay. Get it's what, increasing it's, it's, in value. It's a donation. It's worth every dime. Absolutely. There's a cost of living in Bermuda's high. I think I think that we should go there and, and I was going to suggest that, action. too. Yes, we Everybody go. go get your vaccines so that when we can travel <laughs> – Let's get to Bermuda. Let's go there. George, there's bound to be a mountain in Bermuda you can climb. Exactly. It'll be a thing. All right. Well, Josh, cue the chickens, and Larry, get us out of here. (laughs) Come on, Larry. Those are chickens. I'm speechless, actually. What are you going to complain about now? A special thanks to Everett Lodge 665 for making this beautiful broadcast studio available. Thanks to Josh Lamberton, our producer and director, who continues to make the show great. And thank you for being able to bring the music in so I can be on target here. They're chickens, Larry. Thanks to Jack Harley, our news director. Do we have news tonight? No. No, Walter's on uh, vacation. Uh, Nothing happened. Jack's on thin ice. Uh, Tim Dedman, our marketing director. Talk about thin ice. Masonic, Masonic like 
Oh, jeez. Masonic Light podcast contributors Michelle Snyder and Doug Maddenford. And I, I really don't have much more to say. Yay! I brought this out is, the chickens this for is, this. This is Larry Maris saying thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Good night. Good night. Bye, everybody. Thank you, George. <laughs>